Hey, Russ, how many people do you think listen to our podcast and like write what we say into their music review notes? Who's making money off what we say? It's a good question. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about lately, you know? Hmm. And we're really kind of talking more or less off the cuff. I mean, I have notes, but things come up, I'll say them, and then they could be going into print somewhere and we don't even know it. One thing I can say is I don't think there's anyone out there who listens to more music than we do. Yeah, that's for sure. Even people who do it for a living. <laughs> there really is something wrong with us, I'll admit it. We're, <laughs> we're, just, we're just not made for this world. I don't know. Maybe we're just made for... Being in front of the stereo. I don't and know. we don't have to review all kinds of things. We get to pick. So if you start with what we choose and you like our tastes, you're pretty much guaranteed to have some good recordings to work from there. There are artists I want to hear and I'll just put them on. But a lot of times I'm just choosing things that sound, even not even sound, but look intriguing. I don't even know what they're right. going to sound like. And I just want to discover something new. And uh, my experience has been that I often discover a lot of new, uh, interesting music that way. And yeah. that has been the case on the podcast on occasion. Yes, it has. You'll hear some of those ideas uh, at the end of the year. In fact, one record we talked about earlier in the year, the Venikovsky, I think it was a harp concerto. Was a, she mm. was a Finnish um, composer, won the um, Gramophone Award for the Best Contemporary Album this year. And uh, we had listened to it, too. We liked it a lot as well. Yeah. And they picked it as their Best Contemporary Album of the Year. Oh, great. It might make my year-end list. We'll have to see. Yeah. Well, you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode 136. Wow. And between 135 and 136 this week, we released our latest interview. That's interview seven with drummer-composer, the great Tony Addison. Yeah. It came out on Friday. So if you haven't heard that, definitely go check that out. It's all about his new recording on Odradek Records. A great label that you should know more about, too. Check their website. They have a cool website. Yeah, that's called Relentless Pursuit. That's the album is called Relentless Pursuit, yeah. We talked to him about his composing process and where the ideas for the songs came from and lots of interesting stuff. So if you haven't heard that interview, go back and check that out. Also, a big thanks to Connor Stewart. Yeah, thank you, Fine young Connor. sax player. Yeah, we heard back from about last week's episode. It was his debut recording. We were really excited about it. It's called Whoa. Yeah, and Whoa great indeed. title. Whoa, indeed, we said. If you're a hard bop fan or just a jazz fan in general, really recommend you check that recording. I'll go back to last week's episode. I'll look at the first jazz selection there and listen to that. And he's going to send us a couple of CDs. That's really nice of him. Thanks, Connor. We're big uh, CD uh collectors, at least I am. Well, Russ is too, but I'm a little fanatical. <laughs> <laughs> and for the rest of you, you're going to have to mm. buy your CDs if you want it. But remember, yeah. there's one you wouldn't have found out about if you didn't listen to us. So That's right. Hopefully he gets a lot of attention and gets some ears all the way around the world, even here in Japan, on that nice debut recording. Right. We have a lot of Japanese listeners, so yeah, definitely yeah. check that out, you Japanese jazz fans. All right, we're going to have some interesting and exciting music tonight, as always. So, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place on Deezer, CD-quality streaming music from France. They have podcasts as well if you want to listen to us and the music all in one place. If you can't see the full description or the recording list or the links aren't easy to access on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. 
tell a friend, take a moment and give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the music category recommendations on the podcast services. And you can also come over and check us out on Facebook. We've got a page there. Get extra info and some new releases throughout the week. Keep up to date. You can leave a message or comment there. And otherwise, if you want to contact us directly by email, any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Also, we want to mention our friends over at the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny. They look at several versions of the same jazz standard in each episode. You get two a month from them. They play little snippets from the versions and they discuss the history of the original and what they like and don't like about the different versions. They were on our podcast as guests, and we're going to be going on theirs hopefully next month sometime. So we're looking forward to that. You can find a link to their podcast at the end of our description, also at the end of the audio here. There'll be a little promo from those guys. So looking forward to digging into a standard sometime next month. And tonight we'll be playing some samples as well. So our fair use disclaimer, music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services and the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists. Yeah, well, before we get started, I'm relieved to say that nothing terrible is happening in the uh, jazz and classical world this week. We have nothing to report. Mm. That's because it's all happening in the real world. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so we're in our kind of little uh, safe haven here of music and... Uh, refuge of music. Yeah, the refuge of music, so we can kind of get into this. Okay, so let's uh, just speak off the cuff and say totally original things about tonight's album. The first uh, album I'd like to... Uh, speak more or less off the cuff about, even though I've got a few notes here, is an album of music by Pietro Antonio Locatelli, Il Virtuoso Il Poeta, (laughs) Violin Concertos and Concerti Grossi. That's a great title. The violinist is Isabel Faust, and the ensemble she's playing with, Il Giardino Armonico, conducted or directed by Giovanni Antonini, a great favorite of ours, Mm. because he's been doing the uh, the Haydn 2032 recordings. We've covered a few of those. And there's a new one of those out now, too, that's really excellent. This particular album is on the Harmonia Mundi label. And when I saw this, I thought, okay, El Giardino Armonico and Giovanni Antonini, this is going to be a great thing. But then Isabel Faust, she's one of the world's great violinists, one of the great soloists out there. She's got this very big tone, normally, we're going to talk about uh, this album soon. And um, she's played um, a lot of the, the big repertoire, so I was kind of surprised to see her on this album, and especially with a director like Antonini. So I thought um, <laughs> this, this would uh, probably be a really interesting collaboration. Who would dominate? Would uh, Antonini be conducting as Faust plays, or is she going to really follow his lead? And it turns out to be the latter. Antonini seems to be, well, they're, they're probably collaborating on this. But I want to say Isabel Faust really doesn't sound like I've normally heard her on this. And the results are really kind of uh, interesting. I didn't say that the right way. Uh, they're interesting in a really good way. They're yeah. surprisingly good. Well, well, just surprising. It's just it's a pretty exciting album. Locatelli, let me say a little bit about him. He's, um, he's a composer that kind of falls in between the Baroque and classical era. So he would be the Gallant era, which gets a lot of bad press with uh, classical uh, people. Critics say it's very, um, or let's say scholars, say it's very superficial. It's about surface prettiness, and there isn't much content to it. 
be that as it may, uh, Faust and uh, the uh, Il Giardino Armonico with Antonini really do give us a lot of content in these works. Let's talk about them. They're pretty interesting. Now, the first um, work on this album is Concerto Grosso in C minor, opus 1, number 11. This one is a Concerto Grosso, so Isabel Faust is not on it. But there is a solo violin played by Stefano Barneski, the first violinist in the first violin section. So he gets to step out and play the solo parts. Okay, this starts with a largo. And in Baroque works, in Gallant works especially, you don't really think of there being much drama in them. We hear about them as surface prettiness. But the thing is, we can't really go by the scholarly summary of these things because each work is really very different. So you don't think of much drama in works like this, but Antonini always manages to find drama. Um, kind, of, kind of like your Italian mom, who's always being dr- who's always finding drama in every situation. But uh, Antonini is very good at this. He kind of, at the beginning, pinches out this accentuated staccato on the opening note, and then there's a precise ticking rhythm that follows. This isn't the way this work would normally be performed. This is pretty unique. And for that reason, this movement, which is pretty, I guess, would be pretty ordinary in anybody else's hands, really stays in the memory. Let me give you a sample of this. Check this out. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. It's really pretty. I really like it. It really stays in the mind, I feel. Pretty interesting. Antonini has a gift for making the music he conducts memorable, as we know from the uh, Haydn recordings that we've heard, and as I know from the loads of Il Giardino Armonico recordings that I have in my collection, starting from, I think, probably the 1990s or the early 2000s. I don't really remember when they started. By the way, that solo you heard is, of course, Stefano Barneski. It's not Isabel Faust. She'll be on the next piece. Second movement, Alemand, marked Allegro. It's pretty fast for an Alemand, but it flows with its falling lines and has a positive energy to it that really appeals. It releases the tension built up in the first movement, Largo. The third movement is a Saraband. This is a slow tempo and has a kind of a thick syrup pouring out of a bottle flow to it meaning there's a bit of thickness to the rhythm's movement. As always, though, Antonini has a way of pointing the peaks of lines that make the ear want to remain with the music to hear what will happen next. There's a lack of resolution at the end of this that sets up the following movement. I want to give you a sample of this so you know what I mean by the uh, the thick syrup flowing out of a bottle feel to it. kind of a heaviness to the the rhythm Mm. that I rather enjoyed in that. The fourth movement is a giga, or jig. The speed is a bit exaggerated here. It's highly caffeinated and sounds all the more joyful for that. Rhythms are pointed so that the dance rhythm will get one's toes tapping. 
I should mention the continuo in the bass end sounds vivid and marks the rhythm well, as well as holding down the harmony. When this movement ends, there's a long 10-second pause before the violin concerto starts, a big separation between the works. Okay, tracks 5 through 7 is Violin Concerto in A Major, Opus 3, number 11. And here we're going to hear Isabel Faust for the first time on the album. The Allegro movement, the first one, starts at high speed with great articulation, very close sound. Isabel Faust only has quickly bowed statements at the end of phrases at the beginning. Great play with the dynamics in the orchestra. The violin plays mostly in a feather-light fashion, moving up the scale with barely brushed-out notes in the first minute and has an entire passage in harmonics, which I found amazing, and we're going to have to sample that. This was a pretty remarkable sound to be coming out of this piece. Kind of sounds like someone virtuosically whistling. Yeah. Yeah? Really amazing. The violin part in this concerto is unique. At the 3 minute and 34 second mark, we finally get to hear uh, Faust's full sound. I'll give you a sample of that later in a different movement. Moving up again to the higher end and playing a cadenza with all sorts of interesting effects. The violin in this movement is really interesting, and I urge you to hear the whole movement. The cadenza ends at 5 minutes and 43 seconds, and the tutti heads to the end... That's uh, the first movement, track five. Definitely sample that. The slow middle movement, Locatelli writes his uh, concertos in the Vivaldi fast-slow-fast style. So the second movement is marked Largo, and Antonini uh, gives this rather straightforward opening a lot of drama, being long pauses and sudden contrasting dynamics. The violin's proper entry comes at about the 58-second mark. It's got song-like lines here. But Faust seems eager to match Antonini's experiments in pulling out expression and plays with a wide range of timbres, often offering the ear a surprise. At the three-minute mark, we hear the opening again, this time with some solo violin interjections. The violin gets a brief solo spot to lead the movement to its final chord, which leads into the next movement. The third movement, Andante, has a cheerful polyphonic opening that leads back to homophonic playing for the main body of the theme. At the one minute mark, the violin soloist comes in, playing in a rather straightforward tone, but with many expressive touches added by her bowing and play with dynamics. This is rather less eventful than the constantly surprising first movement, but still the orchestra's constant creativity with articulation and Faust's way with the solo make this a unique experience. And around the 3 minute and 45 second mark, Faust gets a cadenza featuring arpeggios and multi-voiced virtuosic lines. The cadenza gets incredibly high into the violin's range, listen in the 4th minute for that, then descends into the Baroque violin virtuosity we're familiar with, for example from the, the earlier Vivaldi concertos. Another launch into the upper reaches of the violin descends again into multi-voiced circling figuration, this is a great performance and a very creative performance by Isabel Faust in this entire concerto. Her playing is virtuosic, adventurous, and like I said, creative. Okay, now we get to um, another concerto grosso. So these are broken up between piece with violin solo and 
piece with the full orchestra. So the Concerto Grosso would be for the orchestra in E-flat major, subtitled Il Pianto d'Ariana. That's just the, the tears of Ariana when she's left on the island of Naxos in the, <laughs> in the uh, Greek story. Anyway, this is uh, featuring Stefano Barneschi again on the solo violin. The movement starts on Dante and then moves to Allegro, then to a few other tempi as well. And I love the rich bass recorded close here. The violins brush their strings to create atmosphere. The bass line is drawing the ears here. It's an interesting texture, especially considering, well, what used to be the Baroque aesthetic, which is already changing by this period. Let's hear the opening of this work. Yeah, Antonini has a way of just kind of pulling you in with that hypnotic rhythm. Mm. Again, that's not something you'd normally hear other people do in this. It wouldn't, wouldn't have quite that chun, chun, chun kind of real rhythmic effect. At a minute and four seconds, furiously bowing strings come in. The violin at a minute and 35 seconds is again Stefano Baroneschi, leader of the first violin section. He's expressive with a beautiful tone and far more mainstream in his solo playing than Isabel Faust was in the Violin Concerto. There's a big contrast between the two on this album. Towards the end of the second minute, the calm opening texture that we sampled comes back. Then for the last 30 seconds of the movement, the aggressively bowing strings come back and lead the movement to a false cadence where it ends and goes into the next movement. <laughs> nice, uh, clever ending there. So we go directly into the Largo, and this features lyrical solo violin playing from Barneski. Poetic and straightforward, the sound of both violin and orchestra is close and satisfying. There are several cadences at, in the movement, followed by a pause, then a continuing section at the previous tempo. There's not quite a full stop here at the end either. The third movement, Largo Andante, is led into from the previous movement, and it has more rhetorical lines seeming to end on a statement that seeks to reassure, like a person that it would be speaking to, I guess. There are quieter sections of the end of phrases and an elegance to the rhythm and phrasing. The fourth movement, Grave, starts sorrowfully and gravely, I guess, keeping with the, uh, the tempo marking. As the tempo marking suggests there, it features long, drawn-out lines over changing harmony, very legato throughout. The fifth movement, this is a six-movement work, Allegro. Here, Antonini finds a creative way to distinguish this beginning with sharply accented staccato attacks on the opening string lines. The rushing section that follows heads to a dramatic forte, then quickly ends, and the sixth and final movement, Largo, has lyrical playing by Stefano Barneschi on solo violin. This gets a quiet section that ends in a sudden forte chord and the return of the solo violin. Long pauses in the silences, as though there's a fermata there, which I doubt. <laughs> but uh, Antonini really does give you a sense of anticipation by these long pauses. Tracks 14 through 16, a violin concerto in C minor, opus 3, number 2, and we're hearing Isabel Faust again. The andante for this starts out almost like a Mozart work with its happy bounce. 
Locatelli lived in the Galant era, as I said, before Mozart and during Haydn's younger years. So he's just out of the Baroque uh, period. At a minute and 18 seconds, Isabel Faust comes in as the soloist. And I should sample this entry to give you a better idea of what her natural sound is in this music. So we've only heard her doing that really high-end mm. whistling so far. So I want to just give you a more accurate idea of what she sounds like here. Very high tessitura in these works, mm. you know. It's very high up there. There I am using a technical term again. A tessitura is the uh, the range that the piece is in. There are some harmonic surprises in a baroque style, just in passing along the way, but overall this movement is fairly straightforward. Antonini maintains a steady andante tempo throughout. In the fifth minute, there's a cadenza for the violin featuring figuration followed by pauses, as though to get the audience to anticipate the soloist's next move. In the sixth minute, some charming melodic material emerges from the figuration, which continues. Faust goes for some anachronistic but good-sounding effects, such as playing on the bridge for effects, which is really unheard of, really, in this era, but uh, they go for it. They use a lot of the modern uh, effects that have been developed for the violin in these uh, older works. Faust usually, mostly, uses her normal tone in this movement. After her cadenza, the opening repeats and heads to a full cadence, we then go to the slow movement Largo. A brief middle movement at just over three minutes after the eight-plus-minute first movement. This slow theme has some charming turns of phrase in it. The violin comes in on a note emerging from silence at the 48-second mark, plays another that fades out, and the orchestra comes back. Not much was said, but a lot was expressed. At the 1 minute 18 mark, the violin is back with a melodic figure featuring chirping repeated notes and the orchestra comes back to conclude the movement. The third movement, Andante, has a flowing theme at the beginning in the orchestra, beautifully laid out by Il Giardino Armonico and Giovanni Antonini. Here the violin starts playing soon after we hear the orchestral opening. There's a lot of lyricism in this movement. The violin has a nice hiccup in its line, sort of like an audible dance step that's ear-catching each time you hear it. The movement moves along in a flowing 3-4 time. In the third minute, the violin starts a cadenza. It features a lot of figuration and a lot of charisma from Isabel Faust. Her playing here is pretty riveting, not just for the technique, but for the inventive use of dynamics throughout. When the cadenza ends, the orchestra comes back to quickly end the piece. And sadly, that's all we're going to hear of Isabel Faust. We do have one more track, uh, Pastorale in F major, which is an extract from Concerto Grosso in F minor. Opus 1, number 8. This is played with a music box quality, slightly mechanical, with long vibrato-less notes. It has the droning legato of a pastoral. It's got a charming lilt to the rhythm. Antonini finds a way to make this sound absolutely unique, mostly here due to the faded sound he gets from Il Giardino, like the sound of the orchestra kind of sounds like a faded photograph looks, you know, like it's, mm. it's not like in full color. It's, it's kind of interesting. So give that a sample. What we've got here, in conclusion, is something unique made by the performers out of the fairly straightforward music provided by Locatelli. 
Giovanni Antonini and Il Giardino Armonico have been adept at drawing excitement and drama out of Baroque era music since I first heard them back in the 1990s, and here Antonini provides interpretations and performances that perfectly showcase his and Il Giardino Armonico's style. Then there's Isabel Faust, forgoing her huge tone to adventurously join in the interpretations, especially in the first violin concerto, which I found to be the more inventive one. I've never heard her play like this, and it's a real pleasure, and a pleasant surprise as well. This album is so captivating that I recommend it highly. In, in fact, let's end the podcast early so I can hear this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are fabulous performances. They're full of nuance and phrasing and dynamics. I thought Faust's sound blends very well with the ensemble, and her tone and technique are really magical. And the compositions themselves are intriguing, with unique cadences, and sudden surprises if you listen attentively as the music goes along. I'd recommend it for all Baroque music lovers. I don't know if there are any gallant <laughs> music lovers, but I think of it sort of extension of the Baroque. I think you'll like this. Yeah. It's got a lot of good energy and wonderful tone. I think gallant is a word that like music scholars use so that they can make uh, ordinary people just feel like they don't know anything about <laughs> music. We are here to end that on this podcast. Yes. All right. That's what we're all about. All right, our second classical album of the night is an album called An Invitation at the Schumanns. This is by uh, Trio Dichter. Now, the Trio Dichter features one of our favorite violinists on this mm. podcast, Theotim Langlois de Sparta. And the other two members, Hannah Salzenstein on the cello and Fiona Mato on the piano. And in fact, Fiona Mato, this is effectively her album. I think she's on every track. And I'll have to say something about her piano, too. The album also features Samuel Hasselhorn, baritone. There are a few songs on this. Jorge Gonzalez Bojasan, who plays piano four hands with Fiona Mato on one track. And this is on the Harmonia Mundi label as well. So we have two Harmonia Mundi recordings tonight. So have you ever um, thought um, how great it would be back in the day in the 19th century to go to a salon at some... Uh, they're usually run by a woman at her house and uh, have all these great artists there discussing art and playing their new works and showing their new paintings. And, you know, Chopin would play the piano and then Liszt would play the piano and things like that. Well, that's what this album is trying to recreate. It wants you to imagine that you've been invited to the uh, Schumann's house and they're kind of uh, trying out their new art on you, as are some of their composer friends and their musician friends as well. And uh, this is such a great... Um, kind of premise for an album because mm. we usually what, what do you usually get you get like oh piano trios by Brahms and you hear the three piano trios now I have no problem with that I love those works but these kind of programs are um, they're really intriguing they make you hear yeah. the music in a different sort of context so you can kind of hear it the way people at the time might have heard it as um, mixed in with sort of other works by other composers that no one knew what they were going to sound like at the time all right, the recording is further intriguing because it uses period instruments, because anything with uh, Theotim Langlois de Swart on it would. I think he plays a Baroque or a violin. Since the piano is the main instrument that best personifies the figures of Robert and Clara Schumann, both of them play the piano, the program is based around the sound of a Bösendorfer piano from the second half of the 19th century, whose unique richness of timbre inspired and guided the performance. Italian-made instruments was the preference for strings. The violin is by Niccolo Galliano, and the cello is by Pietro Guarneri, a name that violin and cello um, players know, or fans know. 
gut strings are used. You can tell that, especially in Theotim Langlois de Swart's playing. He always has that kind of matte sound. It's not like a bright, shiny, polished tone that you hear in the modern orchestra, who use generally steel strings. So we're hearing gut strings here, which is a perfect complement to the sound of the historical piano. Now, this is, of course, an album that's going to be you know, fantastic to uh, sample because we're going to hear all these sort of unique sounds coming out of familiar instruments. Now, when I say unique, I don't mean that they're going to really surprise you, but they can just sound a little bit off from what we usually hear, and I find that so captivating. The program starts fairly simply. The first work is by Clara Schumann. It's an andante molto, an extract from her three romances, opus 22, number one, and this is for violin and piano. It's got a warm lyrical opening from Fiona Mato on the piano. And then we hear Langlois de Svarte's familiar, beautiful phrasing. This piece gets loud and romantic pretty quickly. Langlois de Svarte has a relatively small but very attractive tone. And Mato is careful to make sure he's heard when he's playing. It's a lovely romantic piece, to us anyway, but it was ahead of its time, as it turns out, with a lot of invention and freedom at the time. It was Viennese before there was really a Viennese style. So we hear these today and we think, oh, it sounds like, you know, this era. But actually, it's before that era. So it's sort of a new work. Keep that in mind when you listen to that. The second work, Robert Schumann, Widmung. This is an extract from his um, song cycle, Myrten, opus 25, number one, for baritone and piano. And here we have Fiona Mato playing the piano and Samuel Hasselhorn singing the text Schumann was going for an integration of words and sounds, so the baritone and piano should be heard as equal partners here, and really in all of Schumann's songs. The text Widmung means uh, dedication, and this is an upbeat, enthusiastic piece, and Hasselhorn comes in with an appropriately enthusiastic tone. I do wish he were more forward in the mix here, but he's perfectly audible. The piano sometimes gets too overexcited, but he's got enough power to be heard. The text itself is ecstatic, calling the subject of the song his soul, his heart, his rapture, his pain, and it goes on from there <laughs> in a very romantic style. Just think of all the things you've ever thought of your spouse. <laughs> That'll give you the idea of what this song is about. It gets them all in there. I enjoyed Hasselhorn's rich-sounding baritone. In fact, he's one of the uh, highlights of this album. Every time you hear him is a pleasure. The third uh, track, Clara Schumann again, Noturno. This is an extract from her Soiree Musicale, Opus 6, Number 2, and this is for solo piano, so we get to hear Fiona Mato on her own here. There's lots of variety in this program already, so with this solo piano work, we've already heard three different combinations of instruments. This has a bit in common with uh, Chopin's famous Opus 9, Number 2, Nocturne in E-flat major, you know, the one that all the piano students play, but uh, departs significantly enough in its melody to be a work that stands on its own. It was written around the time Robert declared his love to Clara, and I think it intends to recall the Chopin Nocturne and comment on it, because Schumann uh, liked you know, Chopin's music a lot. They considered him to be a genius when he was alive. This is apparently an F major, so it gets dramatic in the middle, and then comes back by the opening melody. It's played with deep understanding of its romantic idiom by Fiona Mato, who's really excellent, by the way, on this album. All right, the centerpiece of this album comes next, tracks four through seven. This is Robert Schumann's Piano Trio Number no. 2 in F Major, Opus 80. And we're going to get all four movements of this. This is the only multi-movement work on the album. So it's the big major work, I guess, that they invited all the guests to hear. They're trying it out. 
Clara is said to have particularly liked this work of Robert's. So the first movement is uh, Ser Lebhaft, and we haven't heard any samples yet, and this is really the ideal place to sample because we're going to get to hear the entire piano trio and all their gut strings and uh, late 19th century Bösendorfer piano. Now this piano sound is really very late for the music that's composed on this uh, album, so it's a little bit bigger than any um, piano that... Um, Robert would have had, but it seems to have a very fast action. I'm going to talk about that more later, but let's just sample the uh, first opening of the first movement of the piano trio, number two by Robert Schumann. there at the end all right we're gonna have to stop there too bad i was just getting into that there's already mm. a lot of interesting uh material just coming out of that this is by the way the only work on this album written for a piano trio um the other there are a few other arrangements that we'll hear later on the album so you hear that explosive chord at the beginning that quickly quietens into a dotted rhythm. The movement has a cheerful feel. The dotted rhythm drives the entire first theme. And the second theme, too, which starts at the 54-second mark. Now, actually, I found the sonata form of this movement to be hard to follow. And I was kind of wondering if there actually was one. It sounds very episodic, and it's performed in a sort of through-composed fashion here. There's no underlining of the sections or anything like that. We reach an exciting climax at around the 1 minute and 40 second mark that melds into the next theme at the 2 minute mark. There's no dotted rhythm there. It's more legato in the violin and staccato in the piano. A lot of contrast in this uh, movement. The balance of the recording is pretty good, but so far it has favored the piano from the opening. It's not a problem. We can hear everything, but I would have liked the cello especially to be a bit more forward. He tends to fade into the distance a bit. Or she tends to fade into the distance a bit. There's a cool dissonant chord at the 3 minute 52 second mark that leads to a quieter, more muted playing in the two string instruments while the piano keeps up a bit of a roiling energy. It quietens and provides a continuous harmonic bed for the strings. The sonata form quality, as I said, is a bit hard to pull out of the movement, Schumann keeping the joins blurred, but we do get a sense of familiar material returning at the end. At the 6 minute and 35 second mark, we hear a sort of coda where the violin and cello trade the theme between them. There's a big build by the piano to a climax at 7 minutes and 18 seconds, then a collecting of energy to the rush at the end. It's a performance with a lot of forward energy. The second movement, Mit Inigem Ausdruck, starts with a calm, repeating piano chords at the beginning with winding violin and cello lines. Desparta is a good fit with Salzenstein on the cello. They play melodically with expressive vibrato in their winding songful legato lines. Mato matches them in calmness here, and there's beautiful tone all around with a matte finish to both string instruments. I like the religious quality given to the string accompaniment of the piano at the two minute mark, and let's hear that.
Look at that beautiful descending line, and then it's decorated the second time. Lots of invention from uh, Mr. Schumann. The violin gets a melody, and the parts are then reversed, with the piano playing chorale-like chords. At the 3 minutes and 20 second mark, a more florid arrangement of the opening is heard. The piano chords with winding violin line comes in often from this point. Each time the opening theme comes back, the voices are redistributed and the orchestration is rearranged, keeping the ear beguiled. It's an inventive slow movement and ends with beautiful calm. The third movement, in Messica Bewegung, has a long pause before it begins, which is kind of surprising in between movements of a work like this. It's also rather slow in tempo and features quietly played broken chords on the piano that the strings complete and turn into something thematic. It's kind of a slow barcarolle, as the booklet notes confirm. It moves slowly without any sense of impatience. And being such a lover of Desfartes' sound, I'm happy to say that my ears are nevertheless on the whole ensemble in this movement. They all sound great together, especially in the quieter movements like this one. I really hope the Trio Dichter is going to make more recordings because uh, they sound really good and really unique too. There's a more winding legato B section to this movement starting around the 1 minute and 50 second mark and at around 3 minutes and 30 seconds the opening theme returns and another beautifully judged gentle ending. The fourth movement is Nicht Zurasch. This movement brings us initially back to more forte dynamics with the brilliant flourish on the piano to open the movement and rushing figures that are suddenly slowed by a rather strong pressure on the brakes. It's effective here. The piano remains staccato while the strings brush out their more song-like melodies. There's a lot of brushing out of the sound on the strings on this album. It's a tone that I really like, very gentle. This is a movement that, due to Schumann's constantly stopping or slowing the lines, never catches fire, but it does lead to a bright ending. The eighth track is by Robert Schumann again, this is going to be a familiar work for those of you who have played uh, Schumann's um, Scenes from Childhood. We, we're assigned this a lot when we uh, study piano when we're children. Uh, this is the first um, work in that collection, Von Fremden Ländern und Menschen, which is uh, of distant lands and men, from Kinderzähnen, right? Scenes from Childhood, Opus 15, number one. This is an arrangement for piano trio. It's taken at an appealingly leisurely pace here, the violin playing the melody and the piano doubling it on the repeat. The melody is beautifully shaped and this arrangement works extremely well. The cello doesn't have much to do though, he, he just anchors the bass notes. I'm going to play this one out there for all of you uh, pianists who have uh, studied this work. This is a really nice arrangement of this. You know, on that repeat, we hear the piano doubling the violin's um, melody. That's actually the, the way it sounds on the solo piano. You're playing the, um, the melody and the accompaniment at the same time. The melody, I think, is being played with your fourth and fifth fingers, if I remember correctly. All right, track nine, Robert Schumann again, Mit Umur. Extract five from Fünf Stücke im Volkston, Opus 102, number one. So five works in a folk idiom, I guess. And this is for cello and piano. The cello finally gets an solo outing. She's been in the back for most of this record, so I'm glad to get a chance to hear 
her here. I'm pretty sure I've heard Rostropovich play this piece. It actually sounds rather Russian to my ear. And uh, Salzenstein plays it with a mixture of craft and mischievousness, especially on those uh, low bass figures. So let's hear the opening of this work. So the piece is called Mit Umer with humor. I don't know. I don't really hear much humor in this piece. And it's not the performance either. I've heard other performances of this. But there you go. At a minute and 27 seconds, there's a middle section that speeds the tempo up with busy piano. Uh, the balance between the instruments here is good, but I'd say slightly favors the piano. I've been saying that all the way through, really. There's a rush toward the end when the cello gets up into its high end. I could have used more exposure of the line by having the piano drop back a bit here, but the ending gets quieter and all is well. Track 10, Johann Sebastian Bach. He wasn't at the soiree, but uh, Schumann was a great champion of his music. I think both Robert and Clara, actually. This is his little prelude in E minor, BWV 938. It's an extract from Sex Kleine Preludien a BWV 933 to 938, and this is for solo piano. So here we hear Fiona Mato alone at the piano, but she gets the effect of two separate voices via her handling of the polyphonic material. The bass melody is well differentiated from the more decorated upper voice and gets some melodic material of its own, of course. The piece works as a nice interlude to the other 19th century composers coming up. The next one, ah, I should have checked the um, pronunciation of this guy's name. Number 11, track 11, Niels God. He's uh, Danish. This is his elegy, extract from his Av Vareler, which I'm sure is a Danish, Ak Vareler, a Danish word that I don't know how to say. Opus 19, <laughs> book one, number one. This is an arrangement for violin and piano. So the Schumanns started the soiree on this um, album, and now the guests get a chance to have their music heard. No doubt coaxed out of their shyness and modesty by Robert and Clara. It's a brief piece, less than two minutes, and highly melodic in the violin. The piano has a few figures of its own that add a bit of drama, but most attention is on de Schwarze violin here. I should probably be saying La Gloise de Schwarze, but I want to shorten it even more. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me for that. The twelfth track is Johannes Brahms' Schwesterlein, an extract from... Uh, I don't know how to say 49 in German. 49 Deutsche Volkslieder without Opus 33, Book 3, Number 1. Brahms said a lot of um, German folk songs, and there are four collections of them. This is from the third. This is for baritone and piano, so we get to hear um, Samuel Hasselhorn's gorgeous baritone again in a different uh, sort of um, emotional approach here. It's a lively song. This song starts out energetically and gets sad as it goes. The texture features a brother and sister at a party, the brother asking his sister when they will go home. The sister doesn't want to go for fear that her love will dance with someone else, but she winds up uh, staying long, getting pale, and at the end she's speaking of her death, where she will find happiness. I guess she didn't get the guy <laughs> she wanted. Oh, boy. <laughs> German folk songs are always about how they didn't get the girl. And the Italian ones are always about how great it is to be with the girl. So I think we know what happened here. 
Anyway, this is well characterized <laughs> by the sensitive baritone of Samuel Hasselhorn, from the happiness to the sadness of the end. Track 13, Robert Schumann, Langsam, extract from uh, Fünf Stücke im Volkston. Again, this is a setting of a folk song. Opus 102, number two, for cello and piano. It's a lovely opening melody by Schumann with a more active center. It follows on well from the Brahms folk song, sounding like a folk song itself at the beginning, and lovely legato melody and poetically played by both musicians. Okay, next, track 14. This was a real surprise. Felix Mendelssohn, Andante and Allegro, Assai Vivace, Opus 92. This is for piano four hands. Now, Felix Mendelssohn dedicated this work to Clara Schumann, as she played piano with Mendelssohn, conducting, before she met Robert. This is the only track that features um, Jorge Gonzalez Boahasan, if I said that incorrectly, I apologize, filling in the third and fourth hands with Fiona Mato, who I'm assuming is playing the, the upper hands, the more melodic ones. The piece really sounds like one person is playing it, and the playing is also well integrated, dynamics also well balanced. At the 2 minute and 25 second mark, the very Mendelssohnian playing in the piano signals the Allegro Assai Vivace. This really needs a piano with a light action, and this is what I was kind of talking about earlier. I think this Bösendorfer piano has a, a light action. The, um, the piano that Chopin used, the Erard, had a heavier action, but had like, I guess it was more sonorous. And the, the German pianos had like the lighter action, and you could really fly on them. And because the heavier action was the one that um, became popular, you generally don't hear a lot of pianists these days playing like Mendelssohn or um, people like Hummel or people like that who wrote for the lighter action, these really fast-moving um, lines. But although now pianists are starting to get back into Mendelssohn's music, and we're hearing a bit of a few Hummel uh, recordings too. It's very interesting how the instrument itself can shape mm. what we hear and what we don't hear in the future. This piece, as I said, needs a piano with a light action, and it has it here. The scale playing is very fleet and well executed by Fiona Mato. I'm guessing that's her. Gonzalez Boahasan has some pretty impressive technique in his scales as well. There's a gorgeous staggered technique at the climax at 345. I'm going to play this because this is really, I think this needs to be heard. Wow. <laughs> that's that's quite a climax. You know, four hands. It's pretty amazing. The piece goes on into new, more subdued and melodic uh, music afterwards. There's some more duo-scale fireworks heard in the fifth minute. There's also a nice rhythmic bounce to the playing that keeps the playing catchy, even in scalar figures, as you heard a little bit of there. There's a dotted rhythm that reappears at times, sounding like a manic dance. A lot of what we hear in this piece really has Mendelssohn's signature. It's pretty virtuosic throughout, and the performance is rather miraculous, considering that the four hands are kept in sync at this speed. The upper end of the piano gets a brief poetic solo before the bass and comes in and drives this piece to its manic, high-speed conclusion. Mendelssohn knew how to generate excitement, and this is surprisingly one of the highlights of this album, this particular work, track 14. I didn't expect it to be... But uh, this it's pretty spectacular, so I would sample that. Track 15, Theodore Kirchner, Lied ohne Wörter, 
extract from Bunte Blätter, Opus 83, Book 1, Number 6. And this is for piano trio. I'm guessing this is uh, an arrangement. But it starts simply with an arpeggio flourish. Then the cello comes in with the warm legato melody. Basically here, the cello has all the interest. It's a brief piece, but very pretty. There's no nothing saying that it's an arrangement, so maybe it's not. It's originally for piano trio, I guess. Track 16, Robert Schumann, Meine Rosa. Extract from Sechs Gedichte von N. Lenau und Requiem, Opus 90, number 2, for baritone and piano. It's a tender piece, so Hasselhorn is in tender voice here, very expressive in his gentler tone. The text is by Nikolaus Lenau and is about the singer's desire to keep a rose alive with water because it's starting to droop in the summer sun. And it's got this kind of more macro meaning to it too. It's kind of representing life, I guess. Hasselhorn really is a highlight on this album. Each track he sings is really um, memorable. I've enjoyed his variety of approaches in each carefully selected song. Track 17, another surprise, Domenico Scarlatti, who also wouldn't have been present at this soiree. Sonata in G minor, K Deest. This is for solo piano. We get to enjoy the tone of the Bösendorfer piano in its rather laid-back Scarlatti sonata. We usually hear the jumpier Scarlatti sonatas, but the booklet notes say that while Clara played Scarlatti's works at concerts, Robert didn't like showy music. So to accompany, <laughs> I would imagine he didn't like <laughs> Mendelssohn then, <laughs> but to accommodate both of their ideas, this calmer work was chosen for this program. Fiona Mato plays it thoughtfully and as throughout the recording gets a compelling tone out of the piano. Track 18, Johannes Brahms, Vegan Lead. Oh, the famous lullaby by Brahms that we know from uh, childhood somehow. This is an extract from Funflida, Opus 49, number 4, and we have Samuel Hasselhorn singing this. This has the famous Brahms lullaby with its German lyrics. We know this from our childhoods, and I don't know where I first heard it. I think it may be cartoons again. Every scene where someone was hypnotized or put to sleep, this was automatically played there, you know. Yeah, I don't remember this from cartoons, but yeah, it could very well have mm -hmm. been. It was certainly in the media at the time, though, because otherwise, you know, I certainly didn't hear this on records. I remember in college when I was first starting to listen to classical music actively, I looked for it because no one was recording it at the time. It was actually hard to find. Again, Hasselhorn delivers with his sensitive timbre and clear articulation. This is played in a flowing, rubato-free manner, which I rather like. It's simple without any attempt to wring extra emotion out of it, just as well, because we've heard it like so many times. Mm. I don't recall ever hearing the piano go up into the high range at the end, as Fiona Mato does here, but I do like it. It's nice. That may very well be in the score. I really don't know. And the final track, Robert Schumann. This is the last of the pieces from Scenes from Childhood, or Kinderzenen, Opus 15, number 13, Der Dichter spricht, or The Poet Speaks. And this is another arrangement for piano trio. It's less melodic and fitting for this format than the opening of Distant Lands and Men, but it works well in this arrangement. The cello sounds like it doesn't have much to do again, besides pin down the harmony. The violin gets the cadenza in the middle, but the piano comes in for a bit of it too. Now, in the solo piano work, there are a few um, dissonant chords that end in fermatas, and I feel like it's a sense of crisis that leads to the poet speaking in the cadenza in the piece. I feel like here the sense of crisis that leads to that cadenza moment doesn't really register 
in this arrangement. But no matter, it comes across as pretty. I think it should come across as dramatic, really, so that's just my bias, I guess. Here it comes across as pretty, and it's a touching end to a very enjoyable program. Okay, so this is an excellent program and programming strategy to base the album around a soiree at the Schumann house. I would like to hear more things like this. We've heard a few. I remember the, the mm. Proust one that we did right. uh, last year. We come away thinking what an enjoyable evening one would spend at the Schumann house. The program flows from beginning to end so enjoyably that this is easy to listen to from beginning to end as I did when I heard it. The trio Dichter, uh, surely named after the Schumann piano work that we heard at the end of the uh, album. The trio match each other well in sound, and that's appealing to me as we are both fans of Theotim Langlois' Svartis tone and playing on this podcast. He has found two ideal partners for him, Fiona Mato, and the captivating tone of the 1890 Bösendorfer piano she plays is heard throughout and really is riveting. It sounds more or less like a modern piano, none of that frailness of tone we can get from earlier pianos, but the tone is just a little bit different in a way that will have you contemplating it, and the action sounds incredibly fast, as can be heard in the Mendelssohn Andante and Allegro Assai Vivace, and that's necessary for much of Mendelssohn's piano music. In the end, this is a very enjoyable program that had me dreaming of what once was, and considering the way the world is going with new technology, it's a world I'd like to escape to from time to time, and this is an ideal album to do that with, and I recommend you hear it for that reason. It's a pleasant recital program, and as you mentioned, hearing these works in this sort of order and combination is kind of unique. It makes you experience them in a little different way. It's mostly romantic and content but it's got that Bach center filling and a little Scarlatti too. Hmm. Makes it interesting. There's a balance of lyrical and more energetic pieces, but mostly it's relaxing selections overall. Really fine playing, and the sonics on the recording are excellent as well. Okay, now the last, I always try to get a contemporary composer in hmm. if I can, and this week we really, I think, hit the jackpot. Yeah. We have um, Dobrinka Tabakova's Orchestral Works and Concerti, a recording featuring Maxime Risanov on the viola, Guy Johnston on the cello, and this is the Halle Orchestra, who are just called the Halle, with Deliana Lazarova conducting, and this is on the Halle label, sort of their in-house hmm. orchestral label. The Halle website says this album marks the culmination of two special Halle collaborations and includes four major pieces from one of the most distinctive of current British compositional voices. Now, please notice they said British compositional voices. Now, Tabakova was Halle artist-in-residence from 2022 to 2023, and Daliana Lazarova, the Halle assistant conductor from 2020 to 2023, were both born in the historic city of Plovdiv in Bulgaria, and this is the first time they've worked together. Right, let's just go right to the music, uh, and I'll kind of give a little bit of um, biographical information as we go. The first piece is a, sort of a, a concert opener. It's a six-minute, one-movement work called Orpheus's Comet. What an intriguing title that is. <laughs> Orpheus being the famous lyre player from ancient Greece who made the grass grow by playing the lyre, and all the animals loved him and stuff, and there's a whole story around him. And Comet. I don't know why that would be. But anyway, it's an mm. intriguing title. This features fast rhythmic material at the beginning, combined with atmospheric transparent orchestrations and a climax featuring quotes from Monteverdi, which was very surprising. Yeah. 
Let's hear the opening of this work. It's very quiet. You might have to turn this up. I've turned it up a little bit already, but um, I don't know if this is going to be enough, so let's see. Notice that chugging kind of rhythm at the end. She uses that quite a bit. It's a pretty familiar sound in uh, modern music. I should say contemporary music. The work has a striking opening with low strings, I'm sorry, low winds, playing quick massed patterns. The blanket of buzzing sound this causes is punctuated by stabs from and patterns from the brass and strings, which you just heard. I thought it was an intriguing sound, and I Say that, as with so many contemporary composers, timbral combination is a big part of this piece's profile. There are brief, slower passages, but the quick swirling patterns will often come back. There's a gorgeous, warm, string chorale-type passage at around the uh, 2 minute and 10 second mark. A warm string theme appears at 3.02, but these all drift by like passing clouds as the busy circling material that seems to be the cornerstone of this work keeps returning. At 4 minutes and 10 seconds, there's a surprise, a quote from Monteverdi Toccata that opens his opera L'Orfeo and his Vespers for the Blessed Virgin, which we heard a few weeks ago. Hmm. That made me sit up when I heard it. Uh, it's a nice touch and brings this piece to a majestic close. Now think about this. We've only ever heard that Monteverdi theme used as the beginning of his pieces, and here we find that it makes for a rousing ending. Hmm. So uh, definitely give that a listen. Tracks 2 through 5 are concerto for viola and strings, and this features um, Maxim Risanov on the viola. He's Ukrainian-British and is one of Tabakova's longest collaborators. He premiered this piece in 2004, which is kind of long ago now. It doesn't feel mm. that long ago to me, but I don't know. Time's flying now. Anyway, it's a four-movement work, and the first movement is marked Confident. They all have um, English uh, titles, these movements. It starts boldly with a colorful chord played in the strings. There's lots of color sounds in there and a lot of sustain at the beginning of this work. The viola comes in after about a minute. It makes some lovely ethereal sounds at a minute and 55 seconds in its harmonics as the strings in the orchestra fall back and play light textured chords. The viola then launches back into its throaty low end for some more quick bowed playing. Swooping glissandos in the orchestra mark the end of this section and a new section starts at the three minute mark with the viola playing similar, quick, steady, strung out eighth note patterns, which the orchestra will occasionally pick up when the viola lands on a sustained note. At four minutes and 10 seconds, there's a cadenza with much the same profile as the viola's opening theme. It's brief, the orchestra comes back with sustained chords, and the movement ends on a sustained chord and some ending patterns from the viola. The second movement is marked uh, passionate and nostalgic, and it's got an intriguing opening with the viola playing a repeating arpeggiated pattern and the orchestra entering with another one that plays against it. It's a really intriguing sound. Let's hear it. Thank you. 
and these build over a long period of time. The viola comes in with a melodic solo, and there are a lot of swooping glissando movements between notes at the end of the viola's phrases. I like the viola's deep sound in all of this, and the orchestra's captivating background sounds. Let's listen to a little bit of that in this same movement, because I thought this was pretty intriguing too. Now, by now, you might have noticed that this music isn't exactly episodic. You really have to hear the whole mm -hmm. movement to just hear the whole flow. It's kind of hard to know what to uh, sample from this. But at least you get a feeling for the way the music moves and what it sounds like. At 2 minutes and 55 seconds, there's some Sul Ponticello playing. And the piece doesn't rely on effects like Sul Ponticello or harmonics, but they're heard from time to time. We hear some viola harmonics at the 3 minute and 30 second mark. At 5.05, the viola lands on a heartfelt pattern. It ends with a short glissando. Then the opening pattern is heard in the orchestra while the viola melodizes. The third movement is marked light. And this starts with the viola playing a low, long drawn out note with a beeping sort of rhythm produced I don't know how because we're hearing a string orchestra here. Pizzicato accompaniments start in the orchestra and the viola plays their themes legato. This is indeed light and cheerful and I want to sample this from the viola's main theme that starts a minute into the movement. There's a bit of a folk uh, feeling to that uh, viola theme that I hadn't noticed when I first heard this. Mm. It's immediately appealing. And we also get a feeling for Rusinov's tone in the sample. Rusinov has uh, double stop material at the end, which leads to the fourth movement labeled triumphant. This fourth movement connects with the previous movement and starts with chords floating one to the next in the orchestral strings. The viola contrasts with some rapidly bowed lines. The accompaniment is a chugging set of repeating eighth notes, which then morphs to almost bodiless strings, with the viola playing harmonics high up on the instrument. The section suddenly changes back to rapidly bowed material, and really the rhythmically marked and rhythmless ethereal material trade off for the spotlight. I really love the low string sound at 2 minutes and 33 seconds, very warm. They remain fairly steady and support the more mobile material in the upper strings and especially the viola. Okay, so if you like what you've heard so far, you're in for a real treat here because uh, the centerpiece of this album is tracks 6 through 8, which are the Earth Suite, which is for orchestra. Tabakova says that this work is inspired by the overwhelming forces of nature, and this is the centerpiece of the album, easily the longest piece by a lot. It's in three movements, and the uh, first one is marked tectonic. You can think of tectonic plates uh, beneath the earth. It kind of has something to do with um, 
like the architecture too. It starts with a pretty ominous deep staccato pattern in the bass. It's eventually accompanied by a marimba, so there's some real mm. uh, timbral surprises in this um, movement. So we have interesting sounds right away. The beginning builds up very gradually, I guess like the subtle shifting of tectonic plates, as the title suggests. It takes a long time for the development to happen, and this is one of the things I love about classical music, its ability to use time to express prolonged processes. So there's a lot that's not pop music in uh, classical music. <laughs> we, have, we get a different idea of what music can be. At the two-minute mark, vibratilist strings appear, playing drifting chords as the low bass processes continue. High strings appear and play more quickly bowed vibratilist patterns as light percussion and winds take over some of the processes we heard in the low notes. All the instruments are seemingly brought into action by the previously heard instruments. A shimmering, subtle harp pattern emerges in the third minute, then quiet swirling winds. By 4.40, we hear emphatic, insistent chords, and by the fifth minute, we've got an ostinato pattern in the strings, which reminds me of Steve Reich, especially his uh, different trains, with more thematic fragments above. This all gradually continues, slowly moving into new harmonic spaces. There's a bit of musical minimalist influence used to drive the rhythm of this movement. In the eighth minute, there's even a snare drum playing a continuous role. All kinds of orchestral surprises are heard. Toward the end of the eighth minute, brass and percussion play some of the previously heard patterns in low frequencies as the strings glide in their floating vibratoless chords. All of the sounds we hear in this movement are enjoyable, as is their sudden appearance. I like the way the movement is structured. The brass take over floating chords by the 11th minute, and the strings and percussion have the rhythmic patterns. This is constantly changing, and at the 12-minute mark, we hear the snare drum emerge again as the energy builds and drives the movement towards its emphatic, thudding end on the percussion. And I thought we'd just sample the last 30 seconds of this work. I think it sounds a lot more exciting when you've heard the first 13 mm. minutes or so, because it all builds up to that. The second movement marked Pacific. This starts quietly, too, with some bowing effects on low strings and light marimba taps, which are barely audible. The low brass gives us some ominous from-the-deeps sounds. Tamberly, this all feels satisfying. There's a resolving two-note chord pattern in percussion and what sounds like light brass and winds. High winds come in with a kind of theme, morphing seamlessly into high brass. Tabakova is a bit of a magician with these orchestral timbre sleights of hand. The music here is fragmentary but gentle, like it's trying to build into something. A piano comes in and plays a percussive set of repeating quarter note chords as wind harmonies play something forlornly thematic. Under the piano, we occasionally hear marimba notes, and I'm enjoying the subtle use of the instrument throughout this particular work. There's a kind of sound of the deeps quality to this movement with its low tessitura and spare thematic material. It remains quiet throughout. Toward the end, we hear a harmonized wind pattern taken over at the 10 minute and 30 second mark by light piano plinks accompanied by lightly touched bell-like percussion. Really beautiful in its way. I'd sample this, but I think it might be too quiet to register. You might want to hear it though on your own because I think you might uh, be intrigued by it. It's um, really quiet 
I don't know about relaxing, but it is kind of um, calming, I would say. The third movement, Timbre and Steel, starts with an ostinato percussion pattern, mostly on the marimba. It starts out a bit like a John Adams piece, though the rhythms all lock into the groove. Let's hear the opening of this movement. And that's just going to keep building over quite a long period of time. There's some cool brass punctuation over the pattern, as you heard. It gives the sense of a busy factory, or in this case, a steel mill, I guess. At the two minute and two second mark, there's a syncopated set of chord stabs by themselves, then a swirling ostinato line that appears under that. This movement is percussion heavy, but it's not loud, only busy. There's a lot of um, Steve Reich chugging at the beginning of the third minute, over which the opening ostinato reappears. Now, when I talk about Steve Reich chugging, I'm specifically thinking of his string quartet, Different Trains, which has a lot of those chugging sort of rhythms in it. At 3 minutes and 52 seconds, there's another sudden change with quiet syncopated percussion note setting a pattern over which swirling winds play. This is then broken up at the 4 minute and 30 second mark to warm string lines with a brass theme. The movement moves in sections that are presented and then disappear, like we're hearing various tableaux, or perhaps walking by paintings in a gallery. Overlapping busy material is heard in the sixth minute. The thumping bass we hear on the syncopated chords comes through well. There's a build-up to the eighth minute, resulting in a sudden pause, and then a concluding grand splashy section with multiple ostinati sounding at the same time. The final work, Concerto for Cello and Strings, featuring Guy Johnston on the cello. This is tracks 9 through 11. The first movement is marked turbulent, and the cello section starts a sought-out ostinato line that the high strings accompany. We wonder if the solo cello is in there, and we're not sure, but we clearly hear the solo instrument later, in the first minute of the piece. At a minute and 10 seconds, the ostinato drive stops, and the solo cello enters. Let's hear the uh, solo cello's entry. This happens at about the uh, two minute and five second mark. He's got a, a melody there that's pretty easy on the ear with good vibrato and emotional content from Guy Johnston here. By the four minute mark, the cello is in an ostinato line with some melodic higher notes popping out of the line. This is a sort of a cadenza as Johnston is playing alone here, the orchestra having done a natural fade. The strings creep back in at around the five minute mark. Over serene string chords, the cello gets more aggressive in tone, playing quickly, often pausing to let the string sound shine through. The strings slowly crescendo and wash over the listener, coming to a final sustained chord and a full stop at the end. Second movement, Longing. 
Quiet tremolo textures are heard in the strings section. And I have to say, Tabakova does pianissimo really well. The cello comes in at about the 30-second mark with vibrato-heavy, gently emotional line. This is uh, longing at its finest. Let's uh, sample that. Hear those arpeggios at the bottom as the uh, solo cello continues. Cellos from the orchestra start intermingling with the solo cello there. The soloist playing with strong commitment the entire time. In the fourth minute, over a warm climbing string bed, the cello rises to a higher melodic line that's moving. And his line dissolves into a single sustained note as the orchestra does a natural fade. They come back in pianissimo as Johnston starts an earlier theme again. The third movement is marked radiant and radiant harmonics in the orchestra sound almost celestially bell-like in the opening. Let's hear that. As the cello line comes in, I'm going to have to fade out right about there. Um, radiant. Okay. It's almost like lightly percussive, too, and we're only hearing strings here. The solo cello is heard beneath these lines, as you heard towards the end of that sample, with a climbing melody. In the first minute, the cello solo gets busier with more continuous, often virtuosic lines. The music gradually gains energy and volume, and the cello gains in virtuosity by the third minute. At 3 minutes and 20 seconds, there's a sudden change in the cello's approach to a more slowly phrased, double-stopped melodic line. The cello gains in momentum, playing a quickly bowed line as the more static strings crescendo to a forte dynamic, both soloist and orchestra ending on a sustained harmony. So there isn't really much that's particularly Bulgarian-sounding or British-sounding about this music, although I did catch a few Bulgarian folk-like themes here and there. She very much sounds like a contemporary composer, international, in sound and scope. There's a lot to like in this music. It's very listener-friendly, as you heard. But at the same time, it's not light listening. Attention is needed. The standout piece on this album is the Earth Suite. It's also the longest, but has a lot of content and time-related expression. It's a work worth hearing, and I urge you to sample it. Generally speaking, Tabakova's music has a musical minimalism quality to it, a la John Adams and Steve Reich, but she's got a completely differently orchestrated sound world than these two. The music ranges from energetic to vast, spacious, calm stillness, the latter especially in the second movement of the cello concerto. This is a composer worth getting to know. I'd urge you to hear this album. I found this recording rather enchanting. Her compositions have a sense of urgency to them. And although the Earth Suite is a little bit more measured in comparison, there's a rich tonal palette, even when she's using only strings, 
and the rhythms are often used as textures in the music. The harmonic language is comfortable but expansive, and somehow it manages to sound primordial and modern all at once. The programming is really good on this release as well, alternating the all-string works with the full orchestra. Right. People who are afraid of contemporary classical works, this is very easy on the ears and draws you in. There's a whole rich world of sounds in here. I urge you to hear this recording. Yeah, it's um, easy on the ears, but I wouldn't call it light. It's not exactly no. heavy either, but I wouldn't call it like light. It's got content in it. Mm. Edifying, yes. let's say. All right, over on the jazz side, it's trumpet time this week. Before we get into the recordings, let's talk a little bit about elder statesmen, Mike. Which elder statesman is this? Well, there's many in music that we often listen to, both in classical and jazz. Uh, well, on the piano, for example, Kenny Barron, oh, 80 yeah. years old, still going okay. strong. The man okay. who's a machine of the bass, Ron Carter, 86. Still going, still that's amazing. all over the place. But, you know, wind instruments are another thing. Because not only your hands and your mind, but your lungs need to be strong. Right. And there's the great Charles Lloyd. Right. Still 85, going. still yeah. going. But trumpet is the hardest of them all physically, because not only do you need your lungs, but you need your lips, which you know, your embouchure makes the sound. And so that's really hard to maintain your chops into old age. Well, last year we saw the... Great Doc Severinsen retired at the age of 95, hmm. giving his last performance in the summertime. Maybe Amazing. he said he might come back to uh, play some more. Amazing. He could do what B.B. Uh, King did, like play for 10 minutes and yeah. people would still go to see you, you know. Well, here we have a trumpet player who's an elder statesman and still going strong at the yeah. age of 82. And that's Mr. Eddie Henderson. Wow. Amazing. He came to fame in the early 1970s as a member of Herbie Hancock's Wandishi Band, going out to lead his own kind of fusion groups later on. And he also got his medical degree and worked as a psychiatrist wow. as he was in music, uh, turning back to acoustic jazz later. So interestingly, we had another jazz musician, psychiatrist, Denny Zetlin, oh. recently, when we heard that great Gershwin uh, solo recording. It's a pretty interesting uh career to go into yeah, as a musician. Yeah. It is. After he left Hancock, he went on to work with Pharoah Sanders, Mike Knock, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, and he returned to San Francisco Bay Area, where he was also a member of the Latin jazz group Azteca and had his own bands as well. This is his ninth record as a leader since 2000 and his third release on Smoke Session Records. So he's been quite active. This is Witness to History, Eddie Henderson. As I said, Smoke Session Records came out September 15th. From the Smoke Session notes, it says, My first trumpet teacher way back in 1949 was Louis Armstrong. Wow. Imagine that. Uh, hmm. Who he met through his mother, who was a dancer at Harlem's Cotton Club. Quote, continuing, From that point on, I witnessed the evolution in music through Miles Davis, Freddie Hubbard, Lee Morgan, Booker, Little, Woody, Shaw, John Coltrane, up to the present, I lived through the turmoil of the 60s and 70s and the rise of black power in this country. I was also fortunate to come into contact with people like Sugar Ray Robinson, Joe Lewis, and Willie Mays. So I have been a witness to history, and inevitably that rubbed off on me musically. Yeah, that's an amazing quote, yeah. really. That's quite a life. This release, Witness to History, comes on the 50th anniversary of his debut in 1973, realization. 
So on the recording with him, the great alto saxophonist Donald Harrison, one of the classiest piano players around George Cables. Right, we've heard him before too. I always love from his work with Art Pepper. They did a couple of duo recordings together where he really shines. Great accompanist. Gerald Cannon on bass. Lenny White on drums and also on one tune, the first tune, Mike Clark going back to the Herbie Hancock days. And we're going to get two drummers on this first track to start it out. So let's jump right in there. This is Scorpio Rising. This piece revisits the Scorpio Libra opening track from his debut recording, Realization. And this opener gets things funked up and spaced out. Uh, The intro gets the groove going, basically a funky vamp for the whole tune. With two drummers, it's really interesting. They're separated in stereo. I'm going to play a clip in a moment, but we're in mono. So please check it out on your own on the recording so you can hear each individual drummer. The interplay and Clark's interjections in the drumming are really cool. Somehow it's loose but tight in the pocket all at once. Cables has sparse and spacey roads going, and Cannon keeps the ostinato going with tasty fills. Henderson enters with improvised lines, cool chromatic ideas, and there's echoey reverb for atmosphere. There's a unison horn line that Harrison joins in on, and another a bit further on. Let's see how this gets going. A lot of space there between <laughs> those lines. Yeah, it's, a lot of, the it's a great groove, though. It's, it yeah. never gets boring. So even even with the space, I just want to mm. dig that groove. And Cables gets to take some time on the electric piano. Henderson returns, and they make it into a dialogue with answering phrases from Harrison. The static chord allows for interesting modal line weavings, and they mix it up with more punctuated articulations as well. And Henderson seems to have said enough and then leaves Harrison to blow on his own as the tune fades out. Track two is Why Not? It's a George Cable's tune, the title track from his 1975 debut as a leader. A light, even, clicky drum beat and a constant pulsing left-hand piano and bass rhythm with occasional rhythmic right-hand chord figures make the opening 16-measure section. Interesting contrasting modal chords. The horns pick up into snaky, relaxed phrases that split into harmonies for a 14-measure section. There's a sense of space between phrases. 
Those two sections repeat, and Harrison is up for a solo. He starts with tart, clipped phrases, working into more swirling lines. Henderson's solo here is interesting for its relaxed sense of space, his choice of notes to build tension, and the varied articulation. So let's check out some of his solo on this tune. Just getting going there. I hate to stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cables gets a solo next with lines that ripple along into more rhythmic figures and a final line that rumbles from down low. They take it through the two tune sections again and we hear that low piano rumble into a final horn tag to finish it up. Track three, Sweet and Lovely. Charles and Daniels, Harry Tobias Gus Arnheim. A jazz standard, which is a pop tune from 1931. It was recorded first by Gus Arnheim and his Coconut Grove Orchestra, and in the same year, Bing Crosby had a recording of it with Victor Young. And Henderson here is thinking of trumpeter Booker Little, whose version of it is on the Booker Little Quartet recording, 1958. It's usually done in 4-4, but here they transform it to a bouncy 6-8 meter, White gives four measures of the beat on drums, and then the rhythm section is all in with some groovy bass and piano ostinato for eight bars. Henderson takes the melody A sections lyrically, which is a nice contrast with the pulse going on underneath, and Harrison takes the B section and adds some riffs and harmony on the final A section. Henderson keeps the relaxed feel in his solo with a variety of articulations, reminding me a lot of Freddie Hubbard in spots, and Harrison swings and swirls in his sax solo, and Cables has a solo with a mix of fluid lines and punctuations. They breeze through the melody again and keep the ostinato vamp going for some tasty tinkling keys and rhythmic chords from Cables until it unwinds. Track four, It Never Entered My Mind, Rogers and Hart, of course, from their 1940 musical Higher and Higher, Uh, The recording notes say that Henderson was impressed by Miles Davis' version of this when he was a teenager, and this was the first track on Workin' with the Miles Davis Quintet from 1956, a recording I've also had since I was a teenager. Uh, Harrison sits this one out, and they give it a similar treatment as Miles' version with a piano intro and Henderson using a Harmon mute. It's notably slower, though, and if you know Miles' recording, Uh, You'll notice that right away. Henderson keeps the same sense of sparseness in his phrasing of the melody. Excellent pitch, too. The Harmon mute can make you go sharp. You hear a little bit of that in Miles' recording, but he sounds really good here. Cables gets to shine with flowing piano lines and figures surrounded by space. Let's check out some of his piano artistry on this tune.
Really magical stuff there at that slow tempo. It's a nice warmth to that sound, mm-hmm. too. Really good. Well, Henderson returns for another run of the melody, uh, treating it even more delicately than before. Truly, less is more on this tune. Track five, Freedom Jazz Dance, a tune by Eddie Harris, saxophonist. Uh, this is another kind of uh, dedication to Miles as uh, Henderson fell in love with his version from Miles Smiles, 1966. The tune is basically a vamp with angular melody lines. They keep the funkiness of Harris's version on this treatment. And if you know the tune, sometimes you hear it with the phrases spaced out by two measures of rest, like in Miles' version or Phil Woods' version. And Harris's version has the phrases all running together. So here they mix it up more with an extra two measures of funkiness the first time around, and then they run all of those sections together the second time around. Let's check out the start of this and into Henderson's solo. great groove going on this tune. A lot of great grooves on this album. Anderson has fun building up the harmonic tension and releasing it, adding some glisses and trills on this solo. Harrison follows with some clipped phrases to start out, makes it funky, and has some nice high chirpy cries as well. Cables goes for rhythmic and funky on the solo on this one, and then keeps the groove for White to fill it out with some drums before they run through the phrases together to finish it up. Track six, I'm Gonna Miss You, My Darling. It's a tune by Henderson's wife, Natsuko Henderson. She often writes music for him, I understand. And this is for the sentiment she feels whenever he heads out on the road. It's a waltzing ballad. The rhythm section gives it an eight-measure intro with pretty chord work from cables. The tune is laid out in 18-measure sections. Henderson takes the first section, then Harrison gets around, and they work a harmonized section together. Henderson solos first, showing off his lyricism and relaxed melodic development, and Harrison is delightfully wispy on this one on a short solo before Henderson comes back to join him on the harmonized lines to a warm ending. I feel like uh, if my if my girlfriend wrote a piece about me when I was on the road, she'd call it out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Track 7 is Totem Pole, a Lee Morgan tune from 1963's Sidewinder recording. The original has more of an ostinato thing going on in the bass, but here it has a little more Latin beat drive before the switch-ups to swing. The horn lines keep the original slinky atmosphere with a catchy rhythm section break on the way. And let's check out Henderson's solo on this tune after that. So you can hear all that tradition from Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard coming through in his playing, telling a story on his own terms. Harrison is more searing on his solo on this one, and Cables has a tasty solo too, and they take it through the enchanting minor melody lines with some final tastes from Henderson as it fades out. And the recording ends up with Born to be Blue, a tune by Mel Torme and Robert Wells. This was recorded by Mel Torme and Sonny Burke and his orchestra back in 1946. It's also the title track to Freddie Hubbard's 1982 release with Harold Land on tenor sax. Hubbard's version is a ballad, but this one has more motion from the start with Henderson on the A section of the melody. Harrison gets it on the B section. It gets a little more motion from the walking bass underneath, and Henderson is back to finish it up and continues on into a solo. He builds all of his phrases into larger melodic statements nicely, and Harrison follows with a solo of good intensity and a bluesy climax. Cable's solo has a rhythmic fun and great final upward run into another go-around through the melody from Henderson and Harrison to close out the program. So a witness to history and a history lesson for us all in post-bop trumpet from the tune selection and mastery of Eddie Henderson. His tone and chops still sound great. He's got nothing left to prove, and that relaxed confidence comes through in his solos that focus on connecting ideas in a most musical way. Harrison adds a nice intensity with his tone and darting solo lines on the sax, and always classy piano from George Cables. Solid bass and drums from Cannon and White locking it all in, an inspiration for all jazz musicians and listeners from a player who has been there all along and is still making it happen. Yeah, I like the groove-oriented uh quicker tracks on this album at the beginning especially and there's some ballads in between great sound it was all refreshing to hear all of the grooves in the faster tempo tracks are all interesting and the grooves that are allowed to go on at length as we heard in those um samples that you played i mean we, we could have just kept going some of them had uh, minimal playing in them and i really just enjoyed uh, just sinking into those grooves a lot this is also true in the ballads there was a lot of uh, space for the uh, soloists to stretch out their solos and the two brass soloists allow the space provided by the grooves to shape the way the solo is going to go, with the piano adding energy in his more high-speed approach. Yeah, George Cables, he's a really classy player. I certainly yeah. enjoyed him, and this album too. And especially for the grooves. I liked all the playing too, but I really liked the grooves that they came up with. All right, let's go up north of the border to Canada to hear from trumpeter and pianist Brad Turner on his latest release on Cellar Live, The Magnificent. This came out September 22nd. 
He's released recordings as a leader with a quartet, trio, and his ensemble Metalwood since the 1990s. But this recording, The Magnificent, came about in a little different way. Corey Weeds, the owner of Cellar Music Label, uh, got some funding to make recordings, which he wanted to use with Vancouver jazz musicians to make the records of their dreams, in quotes. And so Weeds picked Turner to be one of these artists, and he asked him who he wanted to record with, and Turner named the musicians on this recording here, guitarist Peter Bernstein, bassist Neil Swainson, and drummer Quincy Davis. And Weeds had worked with all of these players before, and he had no problem getting them together. And then about a month later, Turner also asked Weeds to play tenor sax on four tracks, and everything was set up. And all these tunes are Turner's original compositions. So we're going to start the recording out with a tune called You're Okay. It's a medium relaxed swing feel from Davis's brush drums and soft chords from Bernstein over Swainson's bass make an appropriately sparse setting for Turner's simple lyrical melody lines that he comes right in with. Very nice and chilled. The melody seems to be 34 measures and you'll hear the opening phrase again from the 17th measure. Let's check out how this gets started so you can get the atmosphere here. After the melody turner carries on with a fitting restrained solo but getting some more excitement with rhythmic licks that reach into the upper register. Bernstein follows with a solo of warm sounding fluid lines mixed in with his chord work and Swainson gets a bass solo too deep and ringing before Turner returns with the melody to the end with some final figures over Swainson's burbling bass. Track 2 is called Barney's Castle. The rhythm section gets it going with some nice lines and chords from Bernstein. Walking bass and ride cymbal has it swinging along, and you hear the chords and think we're getting a 12-bar blues. Uh, Corey Weeds is in on this one and takes the tight unison melody line with Turner, and they'll split off into some harmonies later. They seem to be repeating a blues head, but no, it goes off into something different for that middle section of 23 measures, and then it comes back to the 12-measure bluesy melody again. So it's kind of like blues bread with a meaty sandwich in <laughs> middle of it it's like those old uh new york deli sandwiches where there's like a big wad of meat in the middle and uh it's really solid a lot of a lot yeah. of content i yeah. kind of like this idea here so uh let's check it out and Thank you. 
then it comes back. Yeah, so you get a little uh, nice scenic route on this tune. The solos stick to the same format sections. Uh, Weeds is up first for a swinging, husky-toned tenor solo, writing the middle changes skillfully. Turner follows with an interesting solo. I like how he mixes up rhythms and articulations and also includes a lot of interval ideas and getting some bluesy touches. Let's hear a little bit of that solo a little bit later on in this tune. This one again. <laughs> Bernstein sticks to mostly fluid lines in this one at first and then gets it to some chords and double stops. And Davis gets a drum solo with a lot of agility, focusing on the snare and tom drums. The horns return for another melody run to close it out. A very cool tune. Track three, here's a cool title Slapped My Mind. And they change things up a bit for this tune. Turner switches over to piano. And the melody is taken together by Weeds, Bernstein, and Swainson's bass over cymbals and clicks from Davis. It's got a bluesy quality to it, but the chord changes have some surprises as well. The melody has two sections. The first is 12 measures, and then a 16 measure section where Swainson splits off for some lower bass hits. Then there's an 8 measure solo bass section before the 12 measure first horn section returns and a couple of tag measures with unexpected guitar and piano figures that finish it up. Turner's up first for a piano solo. It's rhythmic and snappy with a nice touch in the high register including some bluesy tastes and a little tremolo in there as well. Now let's hear what Turner can do on the piano. Interesting stuff. Well, that guitar and piano figure returns as a transition to Bernstein's solo with a lot of agility in his lines and the same transition idea for a full solo from Swainson that has nice melodic ideas and rhythmic variety. They go through all the melody sections once more to finish it off. Interesting structure that had me guessing what's going to happen next. Track four is Virtue Signals. Turner continues on piano for this one. It's got a lovely sparseness to it, coming in with a cymbal roll into an intro of ringing piano chords and textures from Bernstein. They work the melody together that moves with the piano chords over a light brushed even Latin beat. The notes say the tune is, quote, simply a complete chromatic scale, although ornamented and disguised in descent. I think you'll be able to hear that if you follow the descending chords closely over the 32 measure melody section. 
Bernstein solos first with a delicate touch, and Turner makes his solo piano lines lyrical on this one. Bernstein joins up for a short melody phrase to wrap things up on this pretty tune. Track five is called To Begin, Begin. This one starts out with tricky rhythmic bass figures over light drum ideas and soft guitar. The figures get more frequent and a skittering 6-8 feel develops. Turner comes in with legato melody lines that are spaced out and then there's a more punctuated section. The bass figure returns as an ostinato for a while. I'm not sure about the structure. It seems to be like an A-A-B pattern with eight measure A sections and a longer 12 measure B section. We hear that twice and Swainson then works into a bass solo that has a soft rhythmic intensity and works off that riff idea in spots. Turner has a trumpet solo that balances lyrical lines with some variety of articulations and some speedier and high interjections, and Bernstein gets some pearly guitar tastes and cool chords in his solo. We haven't heard from him yet, so let's check out a little of his guitar playing on this tune. After that, Turner's back for one more round of the melody and a few final improvisations as they keep it going, with the bass and guitar locking in on the riff for a soft ending. Track 6 is Bernice. This tune has a charming rhythmic playfulness to it. Turner on piano here, there's an 8 measure intro and then a 16 measure melody that repeats with Bernstein joining in and there's a final 4 measure section that tags on. Let's check it out and listen for the tricky rhythms and the great bass work from Swainson switching up from syncopated notes to walking in spots underneath. bass work there. The Turner has a really fun rhythmic solo on this one and Bernstein is energetic too with melodic ideas that keep building. Swenson digs in on his bass solo getting way up high and low on the way and Turner and Bernstein trade eights with Davis's tight drum ideas for a round before mirroring the opening melody sections to end it. Track 7 is the title track The Magnificent. Interestingly you should see this album cover too <laughs> because uh, you might uh, think it's out of a uh, jungle book or something stately lioness there on the cover. But the Magnificent here is uh, kind of in the spirit of Thad Jones, and you may know his Blue Note recording from 1956, the Magnificent Thad Jones. And if that wasn't special enough, in 1958, he also released the Fabulous Thad Jones. <laughs> and he really was magnificent and fabulous as a trumpet player and arranger. 
and he'd be the first records. and he'd be the first to tell you that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is recorded live at Frankie's Jazz Club in Vancouver where they played two nights then recorded the third night and then they did the studio recordings the following day according to the notes this is a medium tempo uh, with good accented drive. Turner takes the first sections of the 32-measure melody, and Weeds joins in for some harmonized lines, pushing to the end as the bass and drums push it along. Bernstein solos first with lots of tasty ideas and a relaxed feel settled into the groove, and Turner follows, working up excitement with double-time licks, agility, and a chilled ending. Let's check some of that out on this tune. Does a solo with a lot of snaking smooth lines and Turner's back for another run of the melody with final phrase repeats and big drum fills from Davis underneath and it sounds like an enthusiastic crowd cheering on at the end. Track 8, theme for Josie. It's a ballad composed for the band leader, Turner's partner and fellow trumpeter, Joycelyn Waugh. Well, it must be a noisy household with two trumpeters in there. <laughs> It's a very slow one, and Turner gets to be super lyrical on the melody. I like the little spots where the rhythm section leaves him to float on his own for a bit on the way. Interestingly, there are extra two-beat measures between the eight-measure melody sections that give it a little feel of hesitation on the way. Bernstein adds nice fills underneath, and Turner continues with the solo that balances tender and tricky with a gliss half-valve note and a trill before it ends. And Bernstein has a little solo section into a bass solo from Swainson, and Turner returns to finish it with a short final melody section and a soft ending. And the recording wraps up with Rosemary, one more tune from the live recording date. It's an AABA 32 measure melody with tricky syncopated horn lines, but Weeds and Turner pull them off tightly. Turner solos first, working up some speedy lines on the fast swinging tune propelled by Davis's drumming. Weeds has a good one blowing over just the bass and drums until Bernstein returns. And we haven't heard anything from Corey Weeds, Mr. Solo Live, so let's check out his solo a little bit on this final tune. Go Corey Weeds. <laughs> That's good stuff. Bernstein has a mix of rhythmic chord play and speedy lines in his solo, and Davis gets an extended drum spot as well before the drums are back for the exciting melody lines to finish it. 
a refreshing lyrical trumpet style, impressive piano as well, and Turner's compositions have an interesting freshness and unique ideas to make you really listen closely. The rhythm section is super tight or loose, depending on what's called for on the tune, with Davis and Swainson really locking in together. Add to that the always tasty guitar of Peter Bernstein and Corey Weeds' tenor sax, and you've got a satisfying recording, both on the studio tunes and live tracks, another one not to miss from Cellar Live. Yeah, this recording is extremely well produced, I thought. It's kind of done yeah. in the studio, so everything is like so beautifully balanced. Especially like right at the beginning, he has in the Christmas of the hi-hat, you know, the first thing you yeah. hear on the first track. Really great. That really struck me. I found this record to be very melodic in its soloing, too, which mm. I really enjoyed. They're not really going for chops, although we did hear chops on it. But they go more for, like, I thought, melodic solos. And I really like these musical type of melodic solos on the tracks. It's an appealing approach. I thought Melody drove a lot of the ideas on this album, and that gave it a lot of appeal to me. Um, the playing is solid. Uh, there's a drummer who plays energetic, exciting solos uh, when given the opportunity, which came up pretty often. And I enjoyed the lightness and, again, cleanness of the guitar's sound. The draw here for me was the melodic playing, though, and the very clean recording. It was just a real pleasure mm. to listen to. He can do things very lyrically on trumpet, and his piano playing is kind of interesting and uh, has some nice melodic ideas there as well. So look forward to hearing more. Yeah. Next, we have the recording that Russ has been waiting for for how many years? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's like seven years now. Wow. From a trumpet player I've always liked and always want to hear more from, Mr. Jim Rotundi, here with his quintet. It's called Over Here on Criss Cross <laughs> Jazz label. Came out September 29th. Where's he from? Is he from New York? Is then it would be called Over Here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what I was going to tell you. He's from the great jazz hotspot, Butte, Montana. <laughs> oh, well, that really just throws my whole narrative out the window. Anyway, I came to New York City and played for more than 20 years before moving to Austria in 2012. And he's taught at the University for Music and Dramatic Arts in Graz, well, he's released a lot of albums as a leader for a Sharp Nine, Crisscross, Positone, and Smoke Sessions records. This is his eighth recording for Crisscross, and he's played on over 80 albums as a sidemen. He's recorded with Ray Charles, Lionel Hampton, Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra, Lou Donaldson, Curtis Fuller. Uh, the names go on and on. He's also a member of the great group One for All, and I think I probably heard him first with Mike Ledone. As a matter of fact, when we talked to Mike Ledon, <laughs> I brought up Jim Rotondi. He told us a story about one of the organ gigs that they did together. Listeners are going to have to go back to that interview to hear that That's um, right. story. Now, I've been waiting to hear something new ever since 2016's Dark Blue. Great recording on Smoke Sessions Records. And here it is. So this over here stems from, I guess, a 10-day band tour. And he's got New York musicians, uh, but they're all active in Europe. And they had a uh, gig in Austria, and then they went to Germany, and then they came back to Vienna, and they continued uh, going up into Italy. So they went to Udine in Italy for this recording section. The notes say, the tour gestated from Rotondi's desire to create a European group with tenor saxophonist Rick Margitza, based in Paris himself since 2003. Also, pianist Danny Grissett, a crisscross recording leader on his own, and who's also been in Vienna since 2013. Rounding out the recording, we've got Jim Rotundi, trumpet and flugelhorn, Danny Grissett on piano, Rick Margitza 
on tenor sax, Joshua Ginsberg on bass, and Vladimir Kostadinovic on drums. This was recorded on May 10th of this year in Italy, as I mentioned. Stefano Amerio on the recording, and Mike Marciano editing, mixing, and mastering. Let's jump into the tunes. We're going to go with a good old standard for track one, I'll Be Seeing You. Sammy Fain and Irving Cajal, published in 1938. It was put into the musical Right This Way. And this is a really fun arrangement here. They started out with an eight-measure intro of bass and left-hand piano ostinato over a Latin beat. And then it gets really swinging for Rotundi to take the melody. Uh, Margitza injects some lines of harmony to ends of phrases on the way. And they bring back the intro idea for the ending and give it two extra measures before Rotundi is off on his solo. Let's check out how this gets going. idea there. Well, Rotundi gets the solo bubbly, boppy lines, all well connected with lots of speedy thrills in this solo. We'll hear one of his solos coming up soon, though. Margita starts out more chilled with shorter phrases, building up ideas. He's got a really smooth-toned tenor sound. Grissette has an energetic piano solo with some tricky rhythmic licks and harmonic turns. Once more around the melody from Rotundi, and they don't let that Latin intro idea go to waste, but vamp out on it for Kostanovic to work up the drums, with the horns joining in on the riff to bring it to the end. An uplifting and exciting start to the recording. Track two is a Rotundi original, Pete's 32. This is a cool original minor melody. There's an eight measure A section with syncopated horn lines, followed by four measures of snappy bass and piano riffs that Rotunde gets to blow some bluesy ideas over. Those sections repeat, and then there's a B section that starts out swinging, but holds up with some synced up syncopations. And Rotunde is up first for a solo, so let's check him out on this one. ends it up high, and Margitza follows, working into some double-time lines that break into the swinging B section. Grissett has a nice bluesy solo here that has some great ringing chord ideas too. Once more around the melody to wrap it all up. Another standard for track three, Cole Porter's I Concentrate on You, 
for the 1940 film Broadway Melody. A Latin treatment for this one, another cool intro of bass and left-hand piano lines. They go around again with some harmonized horn lines leading into the melody taken by Rotundi with a great fluffy sound. Check out the cool syncopated bass figures that return underneath. Nice simple cymbal rings from Costa Novik keeping time. Margita gets to trade some lines on the bridge, and they bring back the intro idea again as a transition to the solos. Rotundi's up first again with great flowing ideas and a rhythmic finish. Margita is smooth with nice phrasing on his solo. Grissett has clean articulation on his lines with a little chord explosion in his solo before they work the intro idea back into another round of the melody and take it out with the intro idea and some final ascending horn lines. It's another really fun arrangement. Track four is an original by Danny Grissett, Jim's Blues. A really tricky syncopated melody on this one. Try to follow the beats on this as we take a listen <laughs> to the beginning and hear how it gets going. some really tricky rhythmic stuff going on in that melody. Well, the solos follow a 16-measure blues that gets extended from a normal 12-bar blues chorus with some additional interesting chords. Rotundi and Grissett both get good bluesy solos uh, before getting back to that dangerous melody. Now, track five, this one's got me scratching my head. Hmm. Mocleida. Yeah. The credit given to Jean-Baptiste Rousseau. Okay. Who I knew wrote plays and poetry, but I didn't know he wrote musical tunes. So (laughs) I don't know if there's a little joke in there or something. Anyway, this one gets started with a rhythmic kind of Vince Guaraldi groove (laughs) set by Grissett uh, in the intro for this. Uh, The horns have a melody working some interval-based riffs in two eight-measure sections. Then that groove continues for a four-measure interlude, and the whole thing repeats. And Grissett is up for a solo here. So let's check out his stuff on this tune. Rotundi has a great solo here, evoking some Freddie Hubbard with his modal licks and accents. 
and Margitza plays a steaming one next with Kostodanovic's injecting some nice fills before the 16-measure horn melody comes back once, ending in a high scream from Rotundi. Track 6 is another Rotundi original voice, a slow pretty ballad, the melody's 20 measures, the first 8 have unison sax and trumpet lines, then Rotundi gets 4 measures of his own before Morgitza joins back in, and the last 4 measures section has little answer figures to the horns on the bass and left hand piano. Rotundi has a warm and lyrical solo on this one, but sometimes zips off for an exciting upward run, little falling cascades, and a nice half valve smear in there too. Grisset chimes up some chord magic on the first melody section, but Rotundi is back on the next part, joined by Margitza again to finish it up, short but sweet, at 3 minutes and 35 seconds. Track 7, a solo bass intro from Ginsberg. Get ready for some harmonic twists and wonder where he's going to land all of this stuff. Uh, we just got to check out the beginning of this tune because it's really cool. is all going, but it does settle into a waltzing groove, bringing in the rest of the rhythm section. The 32-measure horn melody has a lot of twists and turns and syncopated ideas. Margitza solos first on this one, working up to a bluesy ending, and Rotundi has some bluesy ideas and high cries in this one as well, with a sense of playfulness. Grisset is more restrained with smooth lines that ripple up and down and work into some chord ideas, and the horns are back for a final go through the melody to wrap it up. Track 8, a Rick Margitza original, Father John. The rhythm section gets a 16-measure intro with Kostodinovic working an intense Latin rhythm groove. The horn lines float more legato on top, smoothing out after faster figures. It changes up to swing and then back and forth over the melody. It's very cool, so let's check it out. Thank you. 
nice Latin groove there from Costa de Novik. Grisset has a percolating piano solo on this one with notes popping out excitingly, and Rotondi speedily handles the groove change-ups in his solo with some fiery high register work. Margitza starts low and works up smooth excitement in his solo with nice harmonic navigations, and Kostanovic busts out an enthusiastic drum solo on this one, too. He resets the groove for the rhythm section to usher the horns back in for a final flight through the melody and some intense ending improvised interaction between the horns before joining up on a final riff. And the recording ends up with another Rotundi original, Happy Feet. It's a fun, fast 3-4 time tune. The rhythm section gets a 16-measure intro, and then the horn melody is really energetic. It's 30 measures in total, kind of like groups of eight with a final six-measure section. It's the final tune, so let's hear one more Jim Rotundi trumpet solo. Great exciting ideas there. Margita follows and Grisset and Ginsberg get solo spots too before the horns return with the melody and join in on the rhythmic piano riff to end it. So it's a great recording in the post-bop tradition from a trumpet player that I always look forward to hearing. Rotundi has great technique and exciting ideas. The tunes here have a nice variety from a couple interesting arrangements of standards to unique Rotundi originals. Nice ones from Grisset and Margitza too. Swinging Latin grooves, some interesting structures and harmonies, a little bit of modal ideas thrown in as well. All the right ingredients, the rhythm section is super tight, and the solos are all inspired. So... Get over here and check out the Jim Rotundi sextet. All right, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you said, I mean, I said the same thing. You said Rotundi is a creative player with a lot of ideas, and you hear those in the phrasing too. Like he doesn't really continue with a phrase; he'll just keep breaking it up and just coming up with this new mm. sort of ideas, different lengths of different patterns. It's really interesting yeah. you know, what he'll do. He's got also a lot of ideas contained in those varying episodes, too. And he's definitely the player I had my ear on the most on this album. Although I also enjoyed the piano solos, all neatly played with a good mm. feel. All the musicians complement Rotondi's style really well. And the drumming and rhythm was energetic throughout. Rotondi has a way of sounding relaxed, even when he's playing at fast tempos. You know, he'll, he doesn't sound aggressive when he's playing that. He's got this mm. kind of like this weird laid-backness in this aggressiveness that I found really fascinating. There's a lot of class on the album, and everyone is pretty much just showing us how it's done on this record. Really good. Yeah. Send us some more music from over there, Jim. I can't right. wait to hear the next one. 
And that wraps it up. A bunch of great trumpet recordings here. Some fantastic contemporary classical music. We've got some Baroque galant and uh, kind of a romantic uh, recital show piece in the middle. What more could you ask for? Well, you could ask for what we've got coming up next week. That's right. But that's just more. <laughs> more great stuff. <laughs> next week, we're going to have a little uh, Latin excursion. Yeah, I've been have I had some Latin classical on the uh, on the back burner for a while, so I've been kind of pestering Russ to get some Latin jazz, which I really love anyway, uh, on there. So we're going to have that next week. We well, we had thought about doing it this week, yeah. but I wasn't really satisfied with the recordings that I had. But I found a few new ones. I've got I think an Argentinian bass led group. I've got some Brazilian piano and one that just came out the day before yesterday. This is going to be a real stretch. Flamenco jazz saxophonist. Well, why not? I've got yeah. uh, Mozart Imambo. We've already done one of these. This is the third and final. Yeah, those um, have been fun, though. Yeah, this is the third and final release in that series. So I really wanted to do it just because we're not going to be able to talk about it again. Right. And then two um, releases of uh, on the uh, Toccata Classics label, one of a Colombian piano music and another one of Mexican harp music, which I don't know anything <laughs> about. So I'm going to no. have to do my research this week, and uh, yeah. I'll tell you all about it next week. <laughs> you know, all I know about flamenco music is that I really like it. Yeah. But I really don't understand what happens and why when I'm listening right. to it. You know, someone suddenly stands up and bursts into song and it's yeah. all including dancing. And I think you really have to get inside that culture to understand what's going on. So yeah. I don't think that happens according to any plan. I think they just feel the spirit in them and they just kind of get up and do that just like, uh, you know, in church or something. Anyway, it's going to be interesting <laughs> to listen to that. So mm. if you want to check out all of these Latin oriented recordings they'll be up on our playlist a few hours after this episode goes up remember check out the tony addison interview if you haven't heard it that came out last friday and it's a really interesting insight into his career and how a drummer goes about the composing process thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo and check out the same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. You'll hear a little message from them in a moment. Any final words for this episode, Mike? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've said enough. All right. <laughs> this has been episode 136, and we'll be back with a special Latin episode next week in 137. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.